We're going to take up where we left off last Lord's Day. Our series is entitled Confessional Apologetics. And we are looking in particular, having looked to the history of why the Westminster divines were gathered in order to set forth a confession of faith within the church. And then we talked about the necessity of creedal thinking and confessional thinking. Why are and why is it important that the church maintains its confession of faith? So that we might properly structure doctrine in a way that it is given to us in Scripture. For there is a system of doctrine. God is a God of reason, and in communicating to us, he did not give us just abstract ideas, but he gave us sound reasons, logical consistency and arguments so that we might know exactly what he wants from us to do concerning the worship of him, concerning the redemption that has been brought in Christ and what is required for us in order to show that great work of Christ's accomplishment You see, he gives us faith and repentance by the power of the Spirit who regenerates these hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh that we will pursue those high calling. To remind us how much Christ loved us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And then how we are to live our lives out. Not only with a declarative sanctification, but a progressive sanctification. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2. He said that we are the workmanship of God in Christ ordained for the good works that were prepared for us to accomplish. And so there is these good works not to be accepted by God. We don't do that in order to be saved because all of our works are as filthy rags, which most people don't know, but it's a Hebrew phrase from the Old Testament, Filthy rags, we're talking about the menstrual cycle rags of women. And they were thrown out because they were filthy, no value. And so it is. He says that's our righteousness. That's all that our good works are worth. Absolutely nothing. but he teaches us how to honor God and how to live for him. 
And when the time comes, which will take a while before we get through this confession, I thought two and a half years, all right, maybe it's going to be five. I'll eventually get through all of this. This first chapter in section one, my fourth sermon, we're going to be into about the 30th sermon on the four that I've written. To keep getting longer and not shorter. But the answer is, we will be able to give, as Paul said, or Peter says, an answer for the hope that is within us. Most people really can't do that. But we have a responsibility to do it. Well, our sermon text. Oh, I guess that was a commercial because I forgot to set the clock. Our sermon text is 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. Listen to Paul writing to Timothy. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Hear this young preacher. Can you imagine? Paul writes a letter and says to Timothy, no matter what you do, you've heard the gospel from your grandmother, from your mother, I'm telling you, hold to this pattern, this reason that God has given us in the revelation of his word. Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Paul says, I taught you, you teach what I have given to you. Let that be your standard, if you will. He says, in faith and in love. Hold them in faith and in love, which are in Christ Jesus. Therein is the hope. Therein is the substance. Faith is not the substance. Repentance is not the substance. They are instruments that God has given to us. The real substance of redemption is Christ. And when you put it at any other place or emphasis, you have denied the pattern of sound words. We have had way too much of the thinking of the philosophers, especially the ancient Greeks and the Aristotelian mentality, wherein this whole doctrine of man's nature, where the concept of free will comes from. But you can't find the word free will in the Bible. It's not there. Man is not being lifted up as if he hath power over the will of God. Because if that's true, we need to close up and go home. Because you'll have no hope. Because at any point in time, you could simply turn and say, I don't believe it any longer. And your redemption would be gone. If that's what you really believed. Not so. Those whom the Father hath given to Christ 
as Pastor Jason has just instructed us very well. They are in Christ for eternity. Ordained before the foundation of the world, chosen in him. Why? Doesn't tell us. Just says that out of his love, he did that. But out of his holiness, which really is predominant of all of his attributes, he could have sent us all to hell, of which we deserved. In the disobedience of Adam, original sin corrupted us. Our whole nature is corrupted. We have hearts of stone, not hearts of flesh that are a little bit hardened, we have hearts of stone. We will not obey. But when God sends his spirit to us who are the elect of God, he transforms us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. He transforms our desires of our own nature, our own nature to be our own God, to determine what is right and wrong. He turns it into hearts of flesh that says, I want to do the will of God. As Jesus Christ himself said, I have not come to do my will. I've come to do the will of him who has sent me. So that becomes our motto as well. This faith and love that we have, which is in Christ Jesus. He says that good thing which was committed to you, keep Keep it. That word, that gospel of salvation, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Without the Holy Spirit, there is death. Life only comes by the power of God's Spirit when he renews us in order that we might be freed from the bondage of sin and free to flee to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, if you also look, Psalm 138.2, here the psalmist writes, I will worship at the holy temple, and praise thy holy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Again, the emphasis of the doctrine we're looking at is what? How beautiful and how wonderful is the name of our God. And yet, he has had it written in the very psalm. Thy word. That which we call the Holy Scripture today. Thy word have you magnified. You've lifted it up above your name. We don't stop to think about the Bible. We think of it like a textbook. 
Some think of it as an encyclopedia. Some as a dictionary. It's not. It is the very, very word of the creator, redeemer, God. The only one that I guess would be classified by today's science fiction, the only one who's an alien out there, but he's not really out there, is he? We are in his thoughts. But he's the only one that transcends all of this. He speaks to us. He comes and gives the revelation of his thought to us. And the amazing thing is, it's a rational thought. It has the pattern of sound words. This is an all-knowing mind who thinks all things at one time. There is no process of thinking with God. He's omniscient, all-knowing. But yet he reveals progressively to us over many thousands of years his word. One part at a time, pulling it all together so that when it's done, you see the hand of God flowing in the concept of redemption from beginning to end. All the narratives, all the didactics, they're all put together. They have meaning, they have purpose. And it's that which we understand from which that purpose has been revealed to us. Now, we've been talking about the necessity, if you remember, of before we ask what exists, the Word of God teaches us that the question is not ontology, being, the study of being, but it's epistemology. How can we know? How do we know God exists? Wherein do you find that kind of specificity? Not just a general theism, that is to say some, well, I have some concept of deity, but what deity? First four commandments says, don't get it wrong because you get it wrong. Bad news. You got to worship the one true God. Where do you come to that knowledge, that body that says to you in all of its splendor, this is the God you must serve. This is the creator. This is the redeemer. This is the one you will stand before at the end of time and be judged. There's only one place, my friend, you can get that from. That's from the special revelation of God. And for us, this has been written to the word. And we're going to look at that because that's the second part of this first section. We're not going to do it today. I'm not even sure I can do it next week. But good news, I've got about 170 pages of notes and we'll get through it eventually. I have to chop it down. But we're going to talk about why the word is called the canon of Scripture. Why the word must 
be closed. How quickly they draw that conclusion. So we are talking about the knowledge of God that we have. And when we talk about knowledge, we talk about not that there is a God. That's kind of a given thing. Again, Paul goes to Marseille, sees all these statues everywhere to all these gods. He doesn't get up and say, you know, the problem with the Greeks is you don't understand there's a God. Are you kidding? They got statues everywhere to gods. Believing in gods is not their problem. Believing in the God, the true God, is the real issue. Because there is not many. There is one. And Paul says, I noticed the statue to the unknown God. Oh, what does that statue say? You can't know the God from what? Just because you're created in his image, even though you have a concept, the seed of divinity within you, you have a concept of something greater than yourself. But what is it? It could be just a greater finite being than you. Could be one of the Greek gods, half man, half divine. Yeah, you can make up any kind of thing you want. Bible comes with a personal God who is above and controls and creates and does all things for his purpose and glory. Paul says, that God, I will tell you who he is. Because he knows that when he begins to tell the story of God, of creation, of its purpose, of the salvation that comes through the appointed son, the Messiah, it will eliminate all other gods because there can only be one. And so let me reiterate, we do not begin with an ontological argument as if to ignore the scripture. But our argument for God is specific. It's what we call epistemological, meaning that it is a knowledge of the truth. A knowledge that is revealed to us that we can know that creator, redeemer, God. It's not a generalized theism. It's not what we call theistic Theism, just believing that you believe that you may believe, kind of existentialistic, reminds you of the Wizard of Oz. You don't have to really believe that the wizard is a god. You just simply have to believe that you believe that you're going to get what you want, and lo and behold, guess what? You get it. That's theistic theism. Well, we believe there's a god. Well, god, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, does it? Yes, it does. Because this God is a holy God. He has given us a law and a gospel to live by. And that means judgment. Man, that's something pagans hate to hear. 
you want to go and have a real exciting time? I mean, do you really want to go and see the mice just scatter, the little rats just run everywhere, screaming and hollering? Let's go to Congress and let's stand before them and say, there is a God who is going to judge you by the commandments of his word for everything you've said and done. And they're going to run everywhere. There's a few of them that are believers. They'll sit there and go, yeah, amen. The rest of them, ah, why? People don't like a holy God. Oh, we want something loving that's so kind that he'll just forgive us of everything. But our God is a just God. It's a holy justice. It's a holy love. It's a holy hatred. It's a holy judgment and condemnation. So it is. We are to maintain that understanding of God that is revealed to us in the word. So it is. We do not just presuppose the Bible is the word of God, but the word of God itself identifies, it validates. It is the self-attesting word of God. It has and is consistently, rationally true. Man has, for thousands of years, tried to tear the word of God up. He can't do it. He has all kinds of arguments. Oh, you can't do this. Oh, you know, this is a problem. No, we got an answer for everything. God just kind of supplied it all. It's there. We're not deists. He didn't just start us up and turn us loose. He gave us the word of life. Well, <clears throat> what's so important is we have an authoritative, epistemological understanding, a knowledge, understanding from an all-knowing mind, the mind of God, who has revealed himself to us. It is there that we come to feast upon the truth of God. We come to gain knowledge, to understand what is being required of us concerning God, of his will, of redemption in Christ, of the way we are to live out our life. So concerning this very point, Cornelius Van Tell wrote of the necessity of the authority of the Bible for our knowledge of everything. You want to speak about knowledge? You've got to understand the authority of the word of God. That is from which we come to know truth. Thus, the importance of special revelation over general revelation, general, if you remember, being that we're creating the image of God, we're talking about the handiworks 
of the world of which he has created, of his providence, the confession says, all well and good, but not sufficient. Just sufficient enough to condemn us and hold us accountable, not able to reveal the truth of God and of his will and of Christ to us. Both are important because both are created by God, both are revealed from God, but one must logically proceed in order to interpret the other. It is not general revelation that is our roadmap, as it were, to understand the Bible, but it's the Bible that is our roadmap that explains the created order of things in the world of which you live. Listen to what Dr. Van Til says. The Bible is thought of as authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, if it speaks of everything, it speaks of everything. We do not mean that it speaks of everything either directly or by implication. It tells us not only the Christ and his work, but it also tells us who God is and where the universe about us has come from. It tells us about theism as well as about Christianity. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. Moreover, the information on these subjects is woven in to an extricable whole. It is only if you reject the Bible as the word of God that you can separate the so-called religious and moral instruction of the Bible from what it says, that is, about the physical universe. The Bible is not an encyclopedia, but it is a book that talks about everything essential to life. It gives us the principles that allows us to extrapolate out a rational understanding of how this world functions. And as a result, when it speaks, it speaks with authority. Oh, it doesn't necessarily give you everything. Of course not. There's no place in there that talks about a gas-powered engine. But there is the concept of transportation. And that's implied, but not only implied, we see it being utilized. When somebody gets on a horse or gets on a donkey, that's the slower method. That's kind of getting on a Honda versus a Cadillac. You get on the donkey and you travel somewhere. There's the concept. Of, or you're in a cart. You travel somewhere. There are by explicit and implicit statements great things revealed in the word of God. Not everything. Because the Bible says, even if you knew everything that needed to be known that Christ said and done, it would fill the world with books. Cannot be done. God gave what was necessary. But when he speaks in the word, it is with authority. Now we'll look at that doctrine of biblical authority. Just understand what he's saying to us. 
Dr. Van Til saying, man, this word is the authority. This is where we get the authority to believe the doctrines of our faith, our life. What is doctrine? Teaching. What the word means in the Greek. We're talking about the things that God has taught us to believe and practice. It's real simple. Again, Van Hill asserts the following, quote, I take what the Bible says about God and his relation to the universe as unquestionably true on its own authority, unquote. Why should I not believe God? Why should I believe man? Man constantly fails. You can see that. Just look at science as it's developed over the last 200 years. How many times have they rewritten the science books? And they continue to rewrite them to this day. Why? Man has a finite mind. There is a God who knows everything because it all comes from his mind. He has spoken it. He has literally thought it into existence. He governs every aspect of it. Every time someone goes down the road of a dirt road in a car, all that dirt and dust that comes up, every part of that was a part of the eternal plan and decree of God. And every dust particle lands exactly where God intended it to land. That's hard to understand. Yet that's the, what the Bible tells us about our God. Why? Because it wants you to understand, you better fear him. If you got a God who has done that, you better fear him when he says, you either believe and repent or I'll cast you into hell. Because you can take it to the bank. You're on your way to a hotspot. And that's not a computer hotspot. I'm talking about the eternal hotspot. You better believe God. But a theistic, that is, the historical meaning of theism, is an epistemological theory which maintains that faith is independent of reason. It's not. It's not a blind faith. It's not an authoritative declaration. But we say you have to begin somewhere. So philosophically, when you're arguing for the Christian faith, the question is, where do we begin? We base it on what we call either an axiom, some call it a presupposition, some call it a postulate. That's what we assert as the point of beginning. And every system philosophically has them. You have to have certain presuppositions or you'll never begin. You just can't do philosophy without them. Problem is, most people have the wrong postulates. They have the wrong axioms. 
They have the wrong presuppositions to their systems. The only one that you can trust is the one that God's word gives to us. Which he says, the Bible is the word of God written for us. That we may know these great truths that God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who will bring all of history to its final consummation and an eternal kingdom and the new heavens and new earth with him. And yet like a fire that will have millions Stop and think. It's going to have more people in hell than in heaven? Of course not. The Bible says there'll be more than man can number will stand before the throne of God. But oh, wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many will go therein. And over time, no doubt, how many people were killed alone in a thing called the flood? Some people say, oh God, God can't choose some people. What kind of a God is that? It's the same God that flooded the earth and killed everybody but Noah and his three sons and their wife and Noah's wife. Eight people. So many animals. And that was it. Gone. The same God that when somebody come down and attacked Israel because of their unbelief and they had failed to honor God and follow him, he brought them down in order to bring them into captivity to get them back on the right, straight, and narrow path of honoring what God commanded them. And then he turns around and says to them, because they have touched my people, you go back, you kill them all. Man, woman, child, don't even bring the animals out. Kill them to burn it all to the ground. Scorched earth program. God's got a real hard way of fighting a war. People don't like that. Why? Because it's justice being meted out by God. He is a sovereign. So if you want to know this God, the Westminster Divines say here in section one of what we've been studying thus far, this God can only be known from the Bible alone. You're not going to get all of this from the concept of the seed of divinity or the seed of religion which is within you just doesn't happen that way, my friends. There's plenty of people in the world that have made up all of those religious concepts and ideas. They're all false religions, every one of them. Comes right out of the garden. Everybody wants to be their own God, and they want to create God in the image of man, not man in the image of the real God. They want to satisfy the guilt of their conscience because they're in rebellion. And the Bible says rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. 
Bible. The Bible is our point of beginning. The Bible is the absolute word of truth that has been revealed from an all-knowing God who is spirit. Manifested in the body of Jesus Christ, the Godhead bodily, but he's a spirit being, does not have body and parts like unto us. He's not a God who is out there somewhere wringing his hands and rocking as a little old man with a beautiful long white beard, not quite like mine, but pretty close, going, oh man, what am I going to do with those people on the earth? I don't know what to do. They won't listen to me. I'm trying. I got news for you. That's not the God that's in the Bible. Our God's a fiery God. You don't believe that? Just ask somebody, if you could, who's been judged by him and found lacking. Ask him how it's going. Not well. Hot. Be like the rich young ruler. Boy, if you could just put a drop of water on my tongue. Remember when we went and felt, dealt with all that, the rich young ruler? Life, death, in the afterlife, what it was like. The God we serve is the God of Scripture. It's not that we presuppose the Bible is the Word of God. How would you know that? You never read it. But having read it, there are many presuppositions the Bible does give to us. It is our point of beginning. It is the point of our knowledge. But it is faith based upon what? Reason. Of which Luther himself, I would remind you, said, not to follow by faith and reason in his own conscience. That would be dangerous indeed. We call the Bible to testify on its own authority, which is that self-validating or self-attesting word of the living God who has spoken with authority in that word that is written, the Holy Scripture. All other so-called truth claims are simply idolatrous claims. There's one book. There's one revelation of truth that man must follow, and it's the word of God. So the question is not that such and such is the case. Systems that begin with a false postulate lacking a divine authoritative validation or justification is simply a humanistic attempt to declare man not God is the key to the philosophy of man wherein man and his will are authoritative and man is able to hold God at bay and at best you end up with a godless utopianism at best rather than the question 
how do we know? Is what serves us well. Not that we know, but how do we know that? The how, the what, must precede the that. How do we know that we know anything? That really becomes the question. Does man really have knowledge of anything? What is truth? Because truth is knowledge. Knowledge is truth. So what is the truth that man has or possesses? We don't begin with a cosmology. We don't look at the created order or, if you will, creation. Causal evidentiary arguments, philosophically, is what they're called. And they're called the same thing in theology. So much of the church has tried to constantly mix Philosophy in to theology, but the philosophy is not from the scripture. It's from a bunch of Greeks running around, and everybody's been arguing those same arguments over and over again. You'd have think that they would know by now that answer didn't work, but it never dawns on. question is not, does God exist? But can we know that God? And can we know things about him in order that we might state with clarity exactly who this God is, what is his will for men, what is the way of redemption, and how should we live our life? to the end of history. It is this epistemic question that constantly draws us back. I'm not interested. I've heard people say to me, well, you know what I believe? I say, you know, I don't really care what you believe. I don't want to be unkind to you. But there's been a million other people that has said, you know what I believe? And they're all in hell today. And I don't think that belief has helped them. I'm interested in what God says he believes and has set forth for us to believe in as well. That's my interest. I'm just not interested in the arguments of man. They've never satisfied. They've never changed anything. We just go through cycles and cycles and cycles we go on through violating not only the first table of the law, the first four commandments, but we go back and we deal with the other six and we violate them. Think about it. If we live by the law of God and by the instructions he has given to us, if we could put them into existence and work and live by them, what a great world this, yes, could be. Think about those last six commandments given to us individually. It's given to protect the family. What the Ten Commandments were always designed not to protect the state, the family. The state doesn't exist without the family. The church doesn't exist without the family. The family is center, as Calvin says. 
But when you get the first four commandments right, then you understand the obligation of the other six individually in their life. And if that's true, how much more true is it in dealing with other people? In a community context and in a national context. And in an international context. Which is why the instruction was given to the family to be given to the children. God has an amazing way of setting forth these things that will absolutely, if man will set forth those principles, have a wonderful world to live in. A world that could be peace and tranquility. Of course, we know because of the sin of Adam, it isn't going to happen. We've seen it over and over again. One nation rise up against the next. And they constantly are killing each other. They're constantly doing evil to each other. We deal with the remnant of that sin. Even as Christians, we have to deal with the sins that we commit daily because we have not been glorified yet. But think of what it could be if we just took to heart the Ten Commandments of God and would learn to live by them. You can't live perfectly because that's impossible, because of Adam's sin. But I'm telling you that the potentiality for living in real peace, to have real justice is based on the law of God. Every family must apply it in their society as a family. Every child must apply it in his life when he goes out into the community. And every community, when they come together with other communities and form nations, must Deal with other nations within the concept of what applied personally to them. Amazing. God didn't come in and say, now look, this is what the state needs to do. I'm going to give you six commandments. No. He says to the family, this is where you learn. What was the fifth commandment? The structure of order and authority in the home, which is foundational to the other five commandments and teaches us how to live within that environment within the world we're going to step out in one day when we grow up to age. So in this way, <clears throat> it's the word of God we go to. We go to that word over and over again. Therefore, the question of knowledge is based as a factual justification or on the idea of the authority of the word of God alone from that all-knowing mind, our creator God. Special revelation, interpreting general revelation, telling us about God, about how he created why he created, the tell-us of the scripture pointing us to redemption for man who falls into sin under the plan of God, that God would redeem them and show himself great and merciful 
and how they must live out their life before him. It is the propositions of the word of God that we live by. The word is literally, as we would say, from the mouth of God to man. When we look at the word of God, which we read earlier as our introduction to this thing, that was God speaking. Wasn't the preacher. I just was making vocal ability of God to say it in a different way, i.e. through me. That's what he called me for. I can't stand up here and say, wow, y'all dress terrible. Everybody come next week with a pink dress on, including the guys. With the little rainbow things in your hair. I can't do that. You look at me and go, you're crazy. Well, probably true. But when I read to you from the word of God, I can say the word of God says we are to do this, this, and this because these are the things God says of us. We must believe and obey. You take it to the bank. That's not me saying it. I'm telling you what the word of God says. And in that way, every Sunday that we have a service, we can put out there on a sign, come hear the voice of God. Because I'm just a sounding voice for God and his word. You see, the Bible is more than a book you lay on the coffee. It's more than a book that you just buy and you give to someone and think, well, it's a good birthday gift. It's a good Christmas gift. And you sign it and it never is picked up again. They don't see it as the word of God. They don't understand that this is God's letter of love to his people. He gives them a history. He tells them how things were, why they were, the way they were, what he is doing to bring it all to an end that will glorify him. And it will be your redemption as a result. We thank God for such truth that God has not left us in darkness. He's given us a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, in the word that he has given us. And what does he say? Thy word has been magnified above your name. You would think, what greater thing can there be than the name of God? And God says, you know what's greater? My word. My word is lifted up above my name. The word of God. It's not just a book but it is the mind of God, the one true creator God, the one who could destroy everything by just simply stop thinking of its existence. Gone, all of it. A God we don't often think of. Not that Greek concept that we've been put around in and you get all these kind of weird things. You remember that concept? Star Trek had a movie where they journeyed to the center of the world because God was calling them. And he said, 
now that you're here, we'll get your starship and we'll go and rule the universe. And at least Kirk had enough theological background, apparently, that he said, excuse me, what's a God need with a starship? What kind of God are you? You know what it is? It's a God made in the image of man. Oh, we want him to be a little bit more powerful, but don't overdo it. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God that's revealed to us in the word of God. Our God is a just, holy, righteous God that demands obedience to what he has commanded. And if you don't want to be obedient to him, serve out the consequences. He doesn't accept excuses. I mean, Charles Spurgeon said it the best I've ever heard it said. When you stand one day before God, just remember this. A bad excuse is worse than no excuse. You have the word of God written. You have the word of God revealed. The very thoughts of God, the very mind, the very intention of what he wants that he will bring to pass you can count on that. The Bible says he raises up nations and then destroys them for his own purposes. He doesn't tell me what all those purposes are. None of my business. Even if he told me, I probably wouldn't understand it because you're talking about an all-knowing mind telling a little pea brain. And expecting him to get it all. It doesn't work that way. He just says, believe my word. It's truth. It's telling you what you must do to have life, to honor God, to praise him, to worship the one true God, to spend eternity in the glory of his presence with his son, Jesus the Christ. We will have a resurrected body and life forever with him. Praise God. Praise God. There is hope. One day when someone asks you, what is the hope within you? Tell him how much time you got. Because I'll lay it all out for you very carefully. There is a reason. If God had not revealed himself, there would be no reason to hope. But he has. And he's put it in. And it's not blind faith. It is a faith that has and is based upon the very reasons that God gives us in his word. It is a knowledgeable, reasonable faith. And we are bound. We are bound to live by that word. Every word. The Bible says... Every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, we are accountable for. So how much time do you spend in the Word? Here's the practical side, and I'll close. How much time do you go to the Word of God and say, wow, this is God's truth for me. This is the things I need to know to live every day in a way that will please Him. That I will grow in that knowledge of Him. I'll study that Word here is a revelation of the one true great mind of all minds. Nothing like unto it. Nothing. It's what the holiness of God means. He is separate, different, 
totally other than any other concept of being you can imagine. He is so unique. The question is, that God is willing to reveal himself. Are you taking advantage of that? I mean, do you really love that God in such a way you're willing to spend your life becoming students of the word? And that way it means you're a theologian. Or you may not be as well schooled as you went to seminary, because you might be able to avoid a lot of bad stuff depending on the seminary you go to, too. But will you just as a Christian give yourself to the study of the Word? That's the question. Are you in love with the Creator who is our do you really want to know him? The only way to do that is from the Holy Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible, God's Word written for us that we may believe and rest in what God promises and tells us in that Word. Shall we pray?